I will say that I'm a little disappointed in Chad's announcements this morning. <laughs> Matt prepared those for him. And at the cross of the top, it said to be sung to the tune of Jingle Bells. <laughs> and he didn't do it. I don't understand. I do not understand. What a joyous time this season brings as we come together to celebrate the, the Advent. And I'm, I'm always so appreciative of Pastor Todd allowing me to be a part of it, and, and the elders allowing me to be a part of this series. Uh, because it, it just is, is kind of special in many ways as we come to this together as a church family and bow before the Lord. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. My main text is on the screen, but we're going to look at also the Gospels this morning. Last week, Pastor Todd took us on a journey, literally from the fall and the promise of one who would crush the serpent's head, all the way to the book of Revelation where the saints are surrounding the throne of God and the throne of Christ and worshiping him and praising him, thanking him for the promises that were made. And all along that route, on that journey that Pastor Todd took us on, he showed us the promises that were made that one day there would come one who would save his people from their sins, that one day there would come someone who would take care of the problem that plagued the entire human race. Well, this morning, we come to the virgin birth. And I would commend to you this morning that the virgin birth is the, the ultimate entrance of that promise into human history. It's the incarnation. It's when Christ came and took on flesh, when God, the God-man, became took on flesh and blood just like us and dwelt among us, the Scripture says. This is sort of the linchpin moment, if you will. There in that manger in Bethlehem by a peasant girl and her betrothed husband, a, a carpenter or, or a, one who builds things, and, and they were not wealthy, they were not royalty, they were nothing other than just normal common people, except that Joseph, the one who would be, if you will, the stepfather of our Lord Jesus Christ, because uh, the, the heavenly father was his real father, but Joseph was in that lineage of David, all the way back to Abraham. Pa Pastor Todd showed us that last week, as in Matthew's gospel, we, we looked at the, what was coming, and we looked at the genealogy, and we saw how each generation just brought forth one more step in that promise until it is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And that's why we celebrate this season we call Advent. Now, I don't think... Anybody really knows when that took place exactly. Probably was not December 25th. Uh, but there's a lot around this story that we kind of take for granted and kind of have accepted as, as truth that, that we're not sure about. We, we talk about the three kings. We three, they're not here, thank goodness, because they shouldn't be. But we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we've traveled so far. There's nothing in the scripture that says there were three kings. There were kings and they brought three types of gifts gold and, and frankincense and myrrh, but there could have been 50 kings just bearing those gifts to bring to the Lord. We don't know the number, but we sing it every year. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We've traveled so far. I don't know if there are three or 30. 
There are other things that I won't even get into the elf on the shelf and the other things like that that uh, have nothing to do with Christmas, nothing to do with the birth of Christ. But yet we come to this one thing. And I will tell you this, there is absolutely nothing more certain in all of the Scripture than what we're going to talk about today. There's nothing any more certain than the virgin birth of Christ. It was, it was uh, it's clearly taught in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean everybody agrees with it. It doesn't mean everybody accepts it because we live in a very skeptical day in many, many ways. But this is the glorious entry of that promise. The prophet Isaiah that you meditated on before the sermon said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. God among us. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and whatever was not made, if it wasn't made, it wasn't made by him. Everything was made by him. And then he says, and he came and he dwelt among us. This creating God came and dwelt among humankind to show us God, to show us life, but most of all, to be our Redeemer. We know that he came in that, in that manger on that first Advent night. He came in that manger with a mission of going to the cross. It wasn't to have a lot of pious platitudes and great teaching that we would say, oh, isn't that a wonderful teacher? It was to show us by signs that he was who he said he was. And that is the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. As Peter said, we looked at it a few weeks ago in Matthew, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But there are a lot of objections in our day to to this whole idea of a virgin birth, and, and there's some very common ones, and we'll just kind of hit a few of them. We certainly can't get on all of them, but, you know, some people say, well, back then, people were just really naive. Back then, you could tell them anything, and they'd believe it. They, they would believe a virgin birth because, hey, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't have a lot of, uh, of scientific evidence and biological evidence. That, uh, they, I, I think they knew how babies were made, though. And I don't think they were naive enough to think, well, okay, Mary just, okay, on her own, she just kind of became pregnant and lived that way. So people just said they were naive. Others, others, a second objection is the idea of the virgin birth is scientifically impossible. We know that a baby can't be, and of course we're talking about, we always talk about the virgin birth, but it really is more the virginal conception of Christ that is so important. The birth was pretty normal. But the conception, the beginning of that pregnancy, was anything but normal. And, and so you have there, people say, well, that just doesn't work. We know how babies are, are, are made, how they come about. We, we know because of science, we know that it just doesn't happen that way. I always got amused at a friend of mine, R.C. Sproul, who in, in class, when I was in his classes at RTS, would, we got into this idea of the virgin birth one time, and, and one guy in the class who was from another liberal denomination, but wanted to take classes there for some strange reason. And he said, well, I just can't buy the virgin birth. And he said, well, tell me, what do you think about the creation? He said, oh, there's another problem too. 
said, you know, that, uh, that, that God just moved, just spoke and things came into existence. I, I believe there was this billions of years of scientific development and evolutionary development, and, and they just all came together. And R.C. looked at him and said, oh, so you believe in the virgin birth of the universe, but you can't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. It's a pretty solid question. I mean, the reality is you can't have it both ways, and so some will just deny them all. The third thing is the Bible, some will say, just doesn't often mention things about the virgin birth. They will say that, well, you know, it's only mentioned in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. John and, and, and uh, Mark say nothing about it. Well, they have different purposes. John's, go- uh, John's gospel is given a cosmic view of who Christ is in that first chapter that I quoted from just a minute ago, that he had a pre-existence before he was born in that manger, which kind of ties in with where that one who was born of a virgin came from. He came from eternity past. He didn't just begin in the manger. So John kind of deals with it at least by implication, if not explicitly. And Mark's idea is that, well, I'm starting to talk about when Jesus began his ministry. John, Mark deals with very little prior to Jesus coming on the scene to begin his public ministry on the earth. But we see this and we recognize that even if it, even if it doesn't, and others will say Paul doesn't mention it at all, and that's probably true. But even if it doesn't mention, Eric Millard Erickson wrote this. He said, if the Bible tells us that it happened, it's important to believe that it did because to do so is a tactic repudiation of the authority of the Bible. If we do not hold to the virgin birth despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible and there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond that doctrine itself. I've known people, you've known people, who come to something like the virgin birth, or maybe some come to the the resurrection, or they go to creation, they come to something that the Bible clearly and specifically teaches, and they say, well, I just don't believe that anymore. And and then you you start seeing this this transition in their life where it goes from one thing to two things to three things until finally there's just almost a total repudiation of the scripture itself. We believe that the scripture is God's word taught, uh, God breathed and taught by the apostles and the prophets and, and, and the old, uh, the law in the Old Testament. And we see that taking place. Another big objection in our day because of the whole Me Too movement, I guess, is, is they will say, well, you know, God acted upon Mary without her consent. He didn't ask her if she wanted to bear the child. She just, uh, he just moved upon her. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, the, the picture, that, the words that are used in, in Luke chapter 35. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 35, uh, that's kind of where we'll be most of it. We'll look a little bit in Matthew, but we'll look at Luke mostly. And it says, and the angel answered her, when Mary said, this can't be, I'm a virgin. There's no way I'm pregnant or going to be pregnant with a child. It's impossible. Mary said that. And the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
the, the words they're used, the most high will overshadow you and will, the power will come upon you, that has very similar wording as Genesis chapter 1. And the earth was void and false, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered among that, and it, it started taking shape as he created. I mean, there's, a, there's the creation in Genesis where God is bringing about the creation of all that there is on this earth, and then there is in this virgin, virgin bearing a child without the aid of a husband in that particular act that says, oh, well, now we're starting a new creation. So the old creation in Genesis... The new creation, the fulfillment of that promise that had been made throughout the history of mankind, throughout the history of Israel, was now coming about. And, and, and Mary had a response to that in verse 38. She said, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, the, the thing you've got to see there is, Mary is not saying, Okay, I give God permission to do that. Nobody has to give God permission to do anything. And he's not saying, okay, Mary said it's okay, so we'll go ahead with it. No, it was already in process. It was already there. And Mary just simply acknowledged, I am a servant of the Lord. That word servant comes from the word doulos, which we talked about in our Philemon study in introduction a few weeks ago. And doulos means slave. She says, I am the slave of the Lord. I am his, and whatever he wants to do, I will rejoice in it. And later in her Magnificat, we'll look at in a few minutes, that's exactly what she does. She submits herself to the will of God. And, and one more objection that we'll look at just briefly before we get into looking at the text fully is, is, chap, is number five is you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe this to be a Christian. You know, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth to trust Christ. Others would say you don't have to believe in the resurrection to trust Christ, but the Scripture says if you, believe, if you confess Christ is Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, the resurrection is a cardinal doctrine that comes at the end of his life, and the virgin birth is a cardinal doctrine that comes at the beginning of his life. The church has held this for over 2,000 years. Some of the earliest confessions, like the Apostles' Creed, says, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's one of the earliest confessions that you'll find in the early Christian church. Or the Heidelberg Catechism, which kind of amplifies on what the, the Apostles' Creed talks about in many ways. The Heidelberg Catechism says, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? The answer is that the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a truly human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers and sisters in every way, except without sin. I mean, the church has believed it. It's only in our newly enlightened scientific days that we say, well, you know, that was good for them to believe, but it's mythical and it's not, there's no way that can be true. Well, the scripture is pretty firm in saying this is what happened. It, it took place. It's taught without any 
equivocation. Look at, look at, uh, we'll go back to Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 with me for just a minute. Because there's several things that are very interesting here. In, in, in Matthew's gospel, in verse, starting in verse 18, you have the birth of Christ. And, and you have, the, in the first part of that chapter, the, the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham and going all the way down to David and to Joseph and, and then to Christ, who was born of Mary in that. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And then he says, all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon or the exile to Babylon to the, to, to the Christ, 14 generations. Plotted out and planned out and worked out in, in perfect symmetry by the living God. Then it comes to verse 18. And, and I want you to see here that... Matthew, some say, well, there are contradictory accounts here. You got Matthew saying one thing, you got Luke saying another thing. They're not complement, I mean, they're not contradictory, they're complementary. I mean, Matthew is dealing with it from Joseph's side. He's dealing with it to bring it through the line of David, where, where Joseph was a part of that family. That's why they went back to Bethlehem, to the city of David, for the census that was demanded to be taken. That was his family's. Uh, uh, heritage home, and that's where they went back to. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, now understand that's more than just what we might call an engagement. That was a legally binding covenant whereby the couple waited for six months to a year before they entered into the, the consummation of the marriage to be sure there was purity, be sure there was nothing untoward that they had to deal with. They waited that time. But during that time, they were legally bound together as husband and wife. They were betrothed before the marriage celebration actually took place. So during that time, Joseph, before they came together, and you know what that means. It's not talking about met out on the street and said, oh, hi, hello. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just and a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. You understand that if she's caught pregnant and not married, the sentence is death for the woman. It's not a pretty sight to be caught in that. But it says he wanted to divorce her quietly and just put her away. Didn't want to put her to shame. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that you looked at earlier. Behold, a virgin, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, there, there's a lot of 
other things that through the years have kind of surrounded the virgin birth of Christ, and, and they typically deal with Mary, and I'm not going to deal with those really this morning. I will tell you just one, two of them that are absolutely not taught in Scripture. One is the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never knew a man. It makes it pretty clear here when they, he says he knew her not until she had given birth. After he, she had given birth to Jesus, they had a normal marital relationship and had other children, James and others. And so there is that idea that's built around uh, basically Catholic dogma that says Mary never ever came together with Joseph. That's just not true, biblically speaking. And, and then there's the whole thing, this didn't even come about till 1950, I think it was, but the, uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary, just like Jesus, was, was conceived without uh, the help of a husband with her mother. There's no biblical evidence to that. Mary was a sinner, just like you and me, who needed that Savior that she was bringing into the world. She was a sinner just like you and me. And just like we have to trust in him and believe in him for that gift of his life to be given to us and bring life to us, the same was needed by Mary, even though she carried the Son of God in her womb. And, and even though in doing that she, she gave birth and then held and suckled that baby at her breast and saw him grow and saw him mature and saw him develop as as a man, but yet him without sin. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing thing how people want to take the beauty of the Scripture and kind of bring it together and say, well, we need to add something to it. We need to make it a little more interesting. So let's say in order for Jesus to really be able to be sinless, then Mary also had to be sinless. No, that is not the case at all. In Mary's case, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon her and hovered over her and she conceived and bore a child by the Holy Spirit and by no one else. So Luke, on the other hand, gives us Mary's response. Uh, it, we know that John the Baptist has been foretold. Elizabeth has been uh, barren. John the Baptist's mother, Mary's cousin. We don't know a lot about Mary's family. We do know that that she had a cousin named Elizabeth who bore a baby named John who we've called John the Baptist. And so after she was pregnant for six months, then in the sixth month, verse 26 of Luke 1, in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. Here's the angel Gabriel coming. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And I love verse 29. This is classic biblical understatement. And she was greatly troubled at that saying. I, I think if I were writing this, I'd say, and she was scared to death. You ever had an angel appear in your room? Would not be a pleasant sight. They're not the beautiful little white-winged women that flitter around that we have, see all around. Angels are warriors. They're God's messengers, and every, every named angel is male in the Scripture. 
And so here you have Gabriel appearing and saying, and, and, and she is frightened. She doesn't know what to think about this. She's troubled. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And this confirms it. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That passage that Mark read just a little earlier out of the ninth chapter of Isaiah which says he will come and the government will rest upon his shoulders and he will rule and he will reign and he will bring peace. And he'll be the virtual prince of peace. There will be no end to his kingdom. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And he answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and, and, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, who in her old age has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There's no contradiction in, the, in Matthew and the Luke accounts. There's, there's complementarianism there. There's, there's showing one from Joseph's side and what he was thinking and seeing, and one from Mary's side and what she was seeing. And, and Luke and Matthew just show two different perspectives. They do that a lot throughout the Gospels. And some will say, oh, there's a contradiction. They said 5,000 here, and it was 4,000 in another Gospel. There's no contradiction they're just different perspectives on what they're seeing. They didn't have one of those little clickers going around to all the people clicking off the number. And Mary said, let it be to me, let it be to me according to your word because I just want to serve the Lord. Then Mary went and got up and went and visited Elizabeth. And when she visited Elizabeth... They came together, and, and, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me. That's Elizabeth talking. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. John recognized who the one in Mary's womb was. And rejoiced even before birth at the coming of the Messiah. What a glorious thought. Oh, we look at that. We look at the accounts. We see John's account of the, the kind of the cosmic view of Christ before creation. And then coming and taking on flesh as he did in this birth. And I guess we have to ask the question, why is it so important? Why is it important for you and me to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Well, I think there's several reasons. One, it's important because there's a close tie between the virgin birth and Christ's sinlessness. 
One of the things you find in Paul's writings and in the, uh, the writer of Hebrews' writings and, and other places, the one thing you find is that they affirm that after being with Jesus, seeing Jesus, living among Jesus, he had no sin. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. That is, confessing the things of the faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Right, Hebrews says, we have this great high priest who has no sin. Every high priest in Israel had sin. And they had offers for their own sin before they could offer for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't have that. He was sinless. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.22, just made this simple statement. And remember, Peter's one who lived with him for three years. And Peter just says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. No one can say that about me. And I know that no one can say that about you because we are sinful and we do need forgiveness. And that's why this, the virgin birth is so important. It brought a sinless Savior into the world. It also, secondly, brings together both Christ's humanity and his deity. You see the humanity side. He's, he's Mary's son. She is a human just like we are. But you see the, the seed being planted by the living God, by the Holy Spirit. And those two are merged together. Just like the angel said in verse 35 there, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. It, it weds beautifully the humanity, and the deity of Christ. Third thing it does is it, it, it's the greater, indeed probably in one sense the climax of all other miraculous births in the history of redemption in the Bible. You know, there were other miraculous births. Not of a virgin, but births that took place when nobody thought a birth was possible. Can you name one? I hear voices, but I can't understand you. I'm an old man. You got to talk up. Sarah. Sarah. Yeah, exactly. Isaac, the birth of Isaac. Sarah was 90 years old, well past the childbearing age, and, and she became with child from Abraham. And they bore Isaac, who was a part of that promise, who we looked at last year as Isaac being the, the true and better, uh, you know, uh, Christ being the true and better Isaac. And we recognize that and we see that. And we rejoice in that. There's also others. There's, there's uh, Samuel. There's Samson. And then there's John the Baptist. All of those. Miraculous births in their own right, but not virginal conce conceived births. But those are important. John Frame, in his book, Systematic Theology, says this. He said, in the history of redemption... 
Miraculous births typically signify major developments. For example, the births of Isaac, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. In these cases, John graciously opens the wombs of women who had been unable to have children. But a virgin birth is a far greater sign than these and indicates that something greater is taking place right now. The king is coming. The Lord is coming. The one who will save his people from their sins is coming and entering the earth and entering the sphere where we live. Fourth thing that this virgin birth reminds us of, I hope, is it reminds us of the miraculous nature of our own salvation. Mary said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. This can't be. And the angel says, well, with God, nothing is impossible. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. I think you know this, but let me just kind of remind you of it. You cannot save yourself. You cannot get into a right relationship with God, the God of creation, the God of the universe, the God who rules and reigns. You cannot come into a right relationship with him by doing good works or being good. You can't do it. It's impossible because you've got sin, just as I do. But the virgin birth reminds us that we have a miraculous salvation in the one who was born on that first night of Advent, that first night of Christmas. And we thank him for that. You can't save yourself, but even though it's impossible for you to save yourself, what is impossible with man is indeed possible with God. That's important to realize. That's, a, that's about the most practical application of the virgin birth you'll ever find. It means so much. And then finally, understanding and believing the virgin birth, the importance of the virgin birth, should lead us to worship. It should lead us to worship. That's what it did with Mary. If you look down, after she's visited with Elizabeth and, and she's talked to her, then Mary, song of praise. We call it the Magnificat. I'm sure that's a just exalted expression. And this is what she said. I won't read the whole thing. I don't think. I might. But Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, she's pregnant with a child out of wedlock, if you will, at least in the eyes of hundreds of people around Nazareth. Here, here, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on my humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the ser his servant Israel. 
in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary stayed there about three months, and then she went back to her home. The thing that the understanding of the virgin birth ought to do, folks, is it ought to bring us to a point of worship. It ought to bring us to a point of falling down on our face before the living God and saying, Lord, I don't understand it. Remember, I had somebody ask me this morning as we were out there, and they said, well, listen, are you going to tell us how the virgin birth took place? The virgin conception took place? And my response was, no. Can't explain. I can't explain the Trinity. I know it's true, but I can't explain exactly how it took place, what what chemistry took place there to bring that about when the Holy Spirit came up on Mary and, and she conceived and bore a son. I can't explain that other than what the scripture says. But let me tell you something, that ought to be enough for us. It ought to be enough for us to know this is what God has said. And we ought to embrace it, and we ought to rejoice in it, and we ought to confess it, and we ought to say, Lord, praise be to you. Because as you did a miracle in Mary's life, you, if you're, if you're a believer today, you, O oh Lord, have done a miracle in my life. You did for me what I could not do for myself. You did for me what, humanly speaking, was impossible, just as it was with Mary. But you have done it. Oh, she says, blessed, blessed be the Lord God. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Listen, what are you doing this Christmas season, this Advent season? Are you thinking about the peace that comes because that virgin bore a son and called his name Jesus because he'll save his people from his sins and he would be called Emmanuel because he was God with us? Are you rejoicing that and saying, Lord, thank you? Are you so caught up in all of the peripheral things and you're so stressed out and you're so worried about this and so worried about that? Is this person going to like that or that person going to like that? Or, and I just don't know. Are you so stressed out that you can't just relax and worship the Lord? I'll tell you this. If you're here this morning a believer... It's my prayer that you will get a new appreciation for what took place on that night and what took place nine months before that night. If you're here and a believer, I hope it will lead you through the rest of this week and, and into next Sunday when we meet at, uh, at 10.30 for a worship time. And then we meet again at 5 o'clock for the, for the Christmas Eve service on that evening. Uh, that both those times you'll come together with a, with a spirit of saying, Lord, my soul magnifies Christ because of what he's done in my life. I give all praise to him. I give all glory to him. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're, you're not trusting in Christ Jesus as Lord, then I invite you to him this morning. I invite you to a church or group of preachers or pastors, I, I invite you to Christ. To come and confess him before men, confess him with your mouth that he's Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And, you know, I believe a person can come to faith in Christ without understanding that the virgin birth is important. But once they've been taught it, I don't think they can go on without it.
And so we come saying, Lord, thank you for what you've done. But I want to warn you. When you start saying, well, that one's just not, I can't accept that. I'll believe everything else, but I can't accept that. Slowly but surely, things start to crumble away. And it affects not just your religious life, not just your church life. It affects everything about you. Because then you get caught up in the lie that Todd dealt with weeks ago. Of Satan coming to you and saying, did God really say? I mean, did God really say that you shouldn't do this or that or whatever? Did God really say you need to believe this with all your heart, this book? Too many times when we start denying one area, he's got his foot in the door, and we begin to deny others, and it changes our life, not for the better. Not for the better, but away from him. I'm so grateful that we serve a virgin-born, crucified, risen Savior who lives forever and ever and who is one day coming to this earth again. Let's pray. we prepare to respond to this great biblical truth. We're going to sing in a moment, forever Jesus. Because he's not Jesus who began in that manger. But he's Jesus who has existed for eternity and will exist for eternity. He is the Savior, and He is the only way to a relationship with the true and the living God. Father, we look to You to do in men and women's and young people's lives what only You can do. I can't save them. I can point them to You, but I can't save them. But Lord, you by your Holy Spirit can. I pray your Holy Spirit just come upon men and women, young people today. And either reaffirm their faith, faith in you and trust in your word, or call them to faith in Christ for the very first time. Father, we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.